Hello VetVolters and welcome to another one of our clinical episodes. If you haven't come across them yet, we host three completely separate podcasts where we release new episodes every week. One in small animal medicine, one in surgery and one in emergency and critical care where we speak to specialists to help us understand the sticking points that vets commonly encounter in clinical practice and to keep us up to date with what's new, what have we forgotten that we should really know and to share all of those hard earned tips and insights. Now, you won't find the full list of clinical podcasts where you're listening right now because it is a subscriber-only resource. But once you subscribe, the feed will appear wherever you normally listen to your podcasts, including Spotify, Apple, or wherever else tickles your fancy. And because I know that when I listen to podcasts, I inevitably forget the details. So we also make some beautiful show notes that you can use at any time to refer back to when you get that case that makes you think, hmm, pretty sure I listened to a podcast on this happens to me all the time, even for my own podcast. We'd love you to check it out at vvn.supercast.com. That's VVN for Vet Vault Network. We think you'll love it and that you'll find that these little bits of wisdom and practical knowledge drip fed into your ears every week will not only help your patients, but that the increased knowledge and confidence that you get from them will make you better at your job, which will make your job more enjoyable. And if you don't love it, well, that's okay. Your first two weeks are free, so you can cancel at any time. Now, the reason that I chose to share this episode on mitral valve disease is because I went into this interview thinking that I was kind of a hotshot with hearts. I know it's an important topic, but I didn't think that I'd learn all that much. I was wrong. Dr. Clint Udelman is a medicine specialist and the brain's eyes and hands of Insight Mobile Veterinary Diagnostics in Victoria. And he talks us through so many critically important concepts, like differentiating the cardiac cough from the non-cardiac cough, when to start treating and with which combinations of meds, when to escalate your treatment, how to escalate, what to look for on a scan, why many of your heart patients should probably be on Viagra, what to do with those coughs that just won't go away, or the fainting ones, or the ones with the big fluid-filled bellies, and much, much more. This is part one of three episodes, and it has so many of the fundamentals about these cases that it was just too good not to share. So, enjoy. Oh, and if you're in Victoria and you listen to this and you think... Crap, I really need someone to scan my heart cases and help me make better decisions. Give Clint a shout at clint at insightmvd.com.au. Hi, I'm Hubert. This is Gerardo. And you are listening to the Vet Bump Clinical Podcast. If you say the word cavi, that's the, the beautiful segue into talking about mitral valve disease, isn't it? It is, isn't it? The poster child. <laughs> exactly. So let's talk mitral valve disease. Such a common thing when I, I've been doing emergency for 10 years, so I don't deal, I see the emergency ones, but I don't see them so much in the, in the early stages all that often anymore. Mm. But mm. despite the fact that you deal with it that common, there are still some sort of a bake areas around it where you still go, I'm not exactly sure where to make, the, you know, what decisions, when do we start, what do we do as first steps, and hopefully we'll get some, some clarity on that today. Yeah, absolutely. Should we start with the cardiac cough? I'm doing air quotes. Uh, the dog that comes in with a cough, older dog, with a heart murmur, but it's also a breed that can have a whole range of other reasons for a cough. Where do you begin with those? A, clin clinically, have you got tips? How do we differentiate a cardiac cough from a non-cardiac cough? 
a concept? It's a, it's, a, it's a great question, and I think it really is a nebulous topic, this particular topic. And a topic, actually, that I presented a, uh, a webinar many years ago, because I think it, it leaves a lot of practitioners in uncertain territory. As you said, you've got your middle to older age small breed dog that presents for coughing, and it's got a heart murmur. Mm-hmm. Is this dog in congestive heart failure, and do we need to focus on treating that, or does this dog have a cardiac but non-congestive heart failure cause for the cough or does it have a non-cardiac and and primary airway kind of cause for the cough so it really is a a nebulous to work through i think a lot of information can be gained from probably three questions directed to the owners the first question is what is the sleeping respiratory rate it's such an important gauge to determine where this dog is at you know if the sleeping respiratory rate is under 30 almost certainly unlikely to have congestive heart failure. So that's almost a quick rule in a rule out. The nature of the cough can provide a lot of guide to the clinician as to whether it could be pulmonary edema or not. Your typical pulmonary edema cough is a wet or soft or moist cough. And the other thing to bear in mind about pulmonary edema to cause coughing is that the coughing receptors are really only in the larger airways. We're talking, you know, the trachea and the mainstem bronchi. So for congestive or pulmonary edema fluid to end up in there, they've got to be pretty significant congestive heart failure. So you'd be expecting those dogs to have severe tachypnea, dyspnea going along too with that cough as well. So respiratory rate, nature of the cough, and also little clues, you know, congestive heart failure coughing is typically worse at night. So if the owner's reporting that it's worse at night, then we kind of uh, are heading down that pathway of congestive heart failure. But I think we need to bear in mind that non-congestive heart failure, but still cardiac causes of coughing are common in older dogs with a murmur. We're talking about things like pulmonary hypertension and or I guess another kind of grey area, which is left atrial-induced mainstem bronchial compression. Yes, so that one, I'm, I'm going to have to ask you about the pulmonary hypertension, but we'll go to the, the last one first. So in my head, that's the that's a dog that probably doesn't have the roundest, most open trachea anyway. It's quite squishy. And then you get that atrium getting bigger and bigger and starting exactly. to put a pressure on there. And is that what you're talking about? Yeah, exactly. If these dogs may have underlying bronchomalacia, that certainly predisposes them. And as you said, as that left atrium progressively gets larger, the pressure and size increases. It starts to cringe and compress upon mainly the left mainstem bronchus. And then that physical irritation, particularly too, because there's a concentration of coughing receptors there, will trigger generally a dry cough. So real kind of goose honk, almost like tracheal collapse type of cough with typically a normal sleeping respiratory rate unless they've got concurrent congestive heart failure. And these cases are tricky and and those ones often involve a combination of x-rays, maybe fluoroscopy and sometimes even bronchoscopy to A, physically see the compression of that mainstem bronchus, but also to do a air wash, a lung wash to see if there is concurrent inflammatory infiltrates because this dog might have chronic bronchitis plus or minus, you know, bronchomalacia and and so that kind of concurrent conditions can potentially be be building together. So many questions. I've got to keep track of them. I'll start at the end there. So when you so I'm always nervous. I get a dog, it's got a heart murmur, it's coughing, it's probably older, and then saying to the owner, let's stick up, let's knock it out and stick scope down its lungs and get mm. a lung wash. Mm. 
in terms of risk of that, it's un- I'm not going to try that. But even sending it, yeah, yeah, sending it to a specialist or getting yourself in to come and do it, is it a fairly high risk procedure or not really? Like, do you do it fairly, fairly happily? Jump, go down that route. Yeah, I'd probably resort to that as a as a last option in terms of diagnostics. I would probably prefer to do something like fluoroscopy, which is done in a conscious standing animal. So it's a much safer procedure to do and uh, can give you almost as much information. Probably the only part that you won't get would be the lung wash and, and the you know the laboratory results associated with that. But you kind of got to weigh up the risks first benefits. So I guess if we had accurately staged the heart disease and we knew where it was at and the dog was fairly stable, then yes, it might be a reasonable candidate for an anaesthetic and that sort of procedure. But certainly I'm one to take on the less harm approach and not do something that may potentially yeah cause cause some issues. So when would you consider doing that? Would you, would you because again, it's if you have a, a slow grumbling infection in there, you're going to treat the heart, but it's not going to come quite good. Is it would you treat the heart and if, if you still see a significant cough, is that when you consider it as a, well, I had a lecturer that used to say, treat what you see and then see what you're left with. Is that going to be the sort of approach yeah, here? Absolutely. I think that that's a do less harm kind of approach, which is, you know, do a treatment trial, essentially, as you said. And does the dog respond appropriately to what you think you are treating? And if it does, then you're probably along the right track. And if the dog doesn't respond appropriately, then you maybe have to go back to the drawing board and say, right, do we need to then go the next step and consider putting a scope down this dog's airways and doing a lung wash? Cool. And then just a quick recap, uh, back to the clinical signs. So that dog with the, the heart pushing on the upper airways, again, that's not a dog that's going to cough at night. That's the dog that gets excited when the owner arrives home and then ends up doing that, that loud cough. Exactly, yeah. okay. exactly. And it's that real typical goose honk sort of cough, a very different cough to your wet, moist pulmonary edema cough. Okay. And then you talked about the pulmonary hypertension. It's not something I come... Yeah, when, when do you see that? What sort of cases? Yeah, look, pulmonary hypertension, once you've got a, a echo cardiac probe in your hand, is something you see uh, so commonly. Like the, the, the literature reports the prevalence of pulmonary hypertension in mitral valve disease around about 50%, really. So one in two dogs with mitral valve disease, essentially, are thought to have pulmonary hypertension. And... If I may, actually, I might just go back. Can I go back one step and, yeah, and be a little bit pedantic here? The actual name mitral valve disease actually, I feel, is actually a bit misleading and inaccurate. And the reason is, like, yes, the mitral valve is the most accurate valve involved, but the tricuspid valve is extremely commonly involved too. And sometimes you can get dogs with only tricuspid valve involvement and no mitral valve involvement so i kind of feel like the the name that we're all being taught and 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 led to believe is actually fairly inaccurate you know i kind of feel it should be called myxomatous valvular disease or chronic valvular disease or something like that because the mitral is not always involved and when it is it's often involved with other valves in the heart like tricuspid that's a paradigm shift for me i mean i in my gp days i thought i was kind of all over Heart disease, I, I scanned them and stuff, but I, I didn't really spend that much time looking at the tricuspid just because it's, yeah, you, sometimes you see something. So you say that's a significant part of the pathology is actually the, the tricuspid as well? It is, it is. I mean, I think from a GP perspective, it's great. A lot of them throw the probe on and have a look and do your left atrial to aortic ratios and, and have a look at the mitral valve. But the poor little tricuspid valve gets pushed down to the side. Because it's hard to see the little bugger on the right side there. <laughs> it's hard to see the little bugger, exactly right. Everything's small and harder to pick up. But um, 
look, look in my hand, I would say, look, I, I see about up to 90% of dogs with mitral valve involvement have, have uh, tricuspid valve involvement. There, there wow. is, by and large, almost all dogs have it. it it's, you've got to look really hard, but it's there. Often you can find a little leak or often you see valvular thickening like you do on the mitral valve. Um, so it, it's definitely there. And, and then it goes right along with the pulmonary hypertension, which we were talking about before, which happens in about one in two dogs. From like a, a if you go by a textbook definition of pulmonary arterial hypertension, it's when that tricuspid regurgitation velocity or maximal velocity is 2.75 meters per second or more. Technically speaking, that's pulmonary hypertension. Usually once they get above three meters per second, that's when I start to think about treating them. Uh, and certainly when they get over or you're into the high threes and into the fours, that's often when they're clinical for it. So sorry, so that's measuring the jet across the mitral valve, not a, not tri, a, tri, tri, oh, the tricuspid, tricuspid. sorry. I oh, gotcha. So yeah, yeah, that's yeah, it. yeah, 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 yeah. So that, that's where I feel like echocardiography is probably a lot more superior than to, you know, your x-rays or other imaging modalities for diagnosing mitral valve because you'll pick up uh, pulmonary hypertension and left untreated pulmonary hypertension can worsen the clinical signs, can hasten the disease and can certainly shorten their survival time. So it's important to look for it, pick it up early and potentially start treating for it early too. That's new to me at least. So you say it worsens the signs, is that also coughing or, or what? Exactly, yeah, exactly. Yeah, they, they cough, they become syncopic, they can be dyspneic. They can be also have they can develop exercise intolerance. So I guess there's a big overlap of clinical signs. They're almost identical clinical signs to congestive heart failure. So you can certainly see how, from a clinician's perspective, you have your dog with a murm and it's displaying those signs. You just go straight to yes, it's got congestive heart failure and we treat it. But, and it may do, but it may also have concurrent pulmonary hypertension and it really requires an echo to to investigate for that and then potentially treat it for that too. So if we go through the pathophys. That'll answer my question that I was going to ask. So it's the pathophys, because you've got a, a jet, instead of all the blood going to the body through the aorta, some's going back into that left atrium, which yep. puts pressure back towards the lung part of the circulation. Uh, and so you get a pressure buildup there. Is that, that's correct. So that's Exactly, how get, that's it. So if you treat the congestive heart failure, so say your ACE inhibitors or pimabendone, or we'll get back to that, does that reduce that pressure in itself? Do you get more forward flow back to the to the systemic circulation and by default you're going to get less blood pooling in the lungs or, or not significantly? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, yes and no. Like um, whatever you can do to encourage forward flow and less backflow will certainly put less back pressure into that left atrium and then backflow into the lungs. So yes, that'll help. And interestingly, pimabendin being a phosphodiesterase inhibitor can actually be used to treat the really mild cases of pulmonary arterial hypertension in itself, in its own right. Um, so in those really mild cases, like a case where I would say the pressure velocity across the tricuspid valve now is around 2.75 to low threes, I would often just treat them with pimabendin alone. Often they're on it anyway because of the left atrial enlargement and the indication for that. But yeah, pimabendin can help with that too. But I guess part of the pathophysiology and, and my rationale for treating fairly early pulmonary hypertension is you get a lot of irreversible changes that you, you purely by that definition, you can't change or, or revert back to normal. And a lot of that comes from the, the arterial remodeling in the pulmonary tree. Okay. And it get, becomes less distensible, becomes hypertrophic and thick. 
And, and so the sooner you can in, implement treatment to prevent more irreversible damage, I feel the better response to treatment you're going to get and, and the slower that disease will, will track along. And so it is a contentious topic. I know I've had some discussions with cardiologists who, who stick to the, the letter of the law and they, they typically don't treat pulmonary hypertension until dogs are actually clinical for it. So like severe syncope or, you know, a, a cough that's not responding for, for, for treatments directed towards other causes. My rationale is a little bit different because there is irreversible damage and the treatment itself is, is, is relatively well tolerated in, in dogs and cats. Okay. Mainly in dogs and the side effects are quite mild. And so yeah, it's just an interesting kind of area where some people do things one way and others another way. Okay, let's bookmark treatment. Uh, I just want to go back to, to diagnostics and, and that first consult or, or monitoring. But we'll come back to, to treating congestive heart failure as well as the pulmonary hypertension then. So that f- the newly diagnosed or the question mark cardiac dog. So it's coming in based on your history and your clinical signs. It sounds like, yep, we've got a cardiac cough rather than a pneumonia or something like that. Yep. You mentioned ultrasound versus X-ray. Is it a is it a one or the other or a both or what's the what's your first step? Look, it it's a good question and, and there's certainly no right answer. I think if you can, I would do both. Okay. I think you get a different perspective of different organs with each test. I think the echocardiography is gold standard to diagnose mitral valve disease or myxomatous valvular disease. So you'll get a diagnosis of the type of of disease going on in the heart you'll be able to more accurately stage it compared to an X-ray. You'll be able to diagnose pulmonary hypertension, which you can't on an X-ray. Um, the X-ray has the benefit of a global perspective of the lungs and the heart and all the other structures within the thorax. And you can look for clues of congestive heart failure because you may see pulmonary venous distension and you may see you know, perihilar alveolar interstitial infiltrates and stuff like that. So they each have their role. But I, I would, if you had to choose one test for that dog that presents, let's say, with a cough that's cardiac in nature, has never had a, a, a imaging done, if you had to choose one test, I feel you'd probably get more out of an echo than you would out of an X-ray. Cool. I used to, used to be X-ray, as you say, to go look at the lungs to see if there is edema present, and and then an ultrasound to look at the heart. But then over the years, as we got better at looking at the lungs with the ultrasound as well doing a TFT mm. fast and you can actually pick up a little bit of edema on a, on a scan as well. I sort of started thinking, well, there's more and more benefit to, for the scan for me as well because you can. it's almost more sensitive to pick up early fluid buildup in the alveoli with those the, the B lines and exactly. everything. But, but then I suppose you want to rule out something else like a cancer or a... Exactly. You know, yeah, okay. All right, so where are we? So we've diagnosed it. We're going to hopefully x-ray it and scan it, but if you have to choose scan it only... What's next? Uh, well, the staging, maybe we'll go through a little bit about the staging and, and when to implement what sort of treatment. That's kind of a, a, a big ticket item for a lot of practitioners because they're seeing these cases day in, day out. And it's like, well, what tests should we do to stage this dog? And then with that information, how do we treat it? Okay, well, with staging, let's start with the one that comes in for a vaccination and there's no history of a cough or anything, but it's got a nice murmur. Okay. How do yep. you make yep. decisions around that guy? Yeah, so again, imaging of some sort, X-ray or, or echocardiography. Um, if we're doing an X-ray, we're probably going to look at a combination of vertebral heart score or the VLAS, the vertebral left atrial score. 
So we can use either of those to stage it, or more accurately, we can do an echo and get a really good measurement of the left atrium, compare it to the aortic diameter and, and stage the dog as either B1 or B2. So we're, we're talking about bananas in pyjamas here, B1 and B2. just about to say that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it's not a kid's cartoon podcast. This is the Vet Vault podcast, but yeah, it's, it's B1 and B2. Um, which, which I feel an echo does an, an excellent job in differentiating. So B1 is obviously the dog with the murmur with no left atrial enlargement and, and no left ventricular distension. And B2 is the dog with a murmur, not yet in congestive heart failure, but has cardiac remodeling, so has left atrial enlargement and left ventricular distension. Okay, so that, those are two of the stages. Should we go through the other stages and then start talking about when do you start treating? Because I know there's a yeah, bunch of research yeah. about when do you actually jump in with treatment. Yeah, exactly. Stage A is the most superfluous stage that has ever been invented. <laughs> stage A basically means an at-risk breed. So the day a Cavalier, a small breed dog is born, it's a stage A. It's in stage, stage A, Michael. <laughs> really? <laughs> I, just, I don't see the purpose of that stage, but it's, been, it's there anyway. Okay. If someone can tell me what the purpose is, I, I, I'd, I'd love to know. <laughs> And then is B1, um, B1, B2, so non-clinical, right? Correct, yep. Now we start, stage C is, is congestive heart failure. Okay. And, and stage D is kind of considered refractory congestive heart failure or end stage, you know, heart failure. Okay. And do you, are there sub-classifications for those or is it just your clinical or, or, and you're dying, basically? Yeah, basically, <laughs> I mean, the, the ACVIM consensus guidelines differentiate stage C to stage D, often based on fruzamide dose. So dogs taking more than eight milligrams per kilogram per day of fruzamide are, are considered stage D. I like it. It's easy to remember. C for clinical, D for dying. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> There we go. We hope you found that useful. If you liked it and you want to hear more about mitral valve disease and a heap of other stuff in small animal medicine, smallest surgery and emergency and critical care, go and check out our clinical podcast series at vvn.supercast.com. See you next time.